And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Who knows what the most, I don't know, famous sermon ever preached in America? It was actually preached before America, so I need on the North American continent. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. If you don't know it uh, or haven't read it, it'll take you a few. It'll take you a minute to read it. Uh, it's eleven pages, single spaced, typed. Back in those days, they preached for an hour and a half. You know. Uh, so I encourage you to read it. It was first preached at his own congregation. Jonathan Edwards is the preacher. Uh, and he took it off of one little phrase of a verse in Deuteronomy that says, in due time, their foot will slip. And it's called Sinners in the Hands of Anger God. Now, they asked him to come preach. It didn't have a huge response at his church. And believe it or not, he says that he did not even lift his eyes. He read it. It is, is such a hard hit. He never even looked at the congregation. But they asked him to come uh, preach this sermon at Enfield, Connecticut. The Great Awakening had started, but Enfield, this community in Connecticut, was resistant. So he came and preached it that day, and hundreds came to the Lord. And all of a sudden, Enfield, Connecticut, in 1741, July 8th was the Sunday that he preached it, they got with the uh, Great Awakening. So God has used that sermon like he has very few others. To say that the concept of God's wrath is out of sync with our modern society, that's uh, kind of to state the obvious, is it not? Even many who claim to be evangelicals object to and minimize any mention of God's wrath. They may say they believe it because it's in the Bible, but somehow they're embarrassed by it. I've even heard of professing Christians who say, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. In my ordination council, does anybody remember uh, Brother Kenneth? Who was the pastor for many years after you at uh, Thomasville Road? Oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Billy Cruz. Billy Cruz. He was at my ordination service, and he says, well, my question is, when you, when you preach, will you preach more on the wrath of God or the love of God? Now, I'll let you figure that out when we finish the sermon, Okay. Um, some sometimes people ignorantly imply that the God of the Old Testament was the God of wrath, but by the New Testament, he'd kind of chilled out to, you know, just a good old guy upstairs. I've been told that Jesus was always loving and never judgmental. And I want to ask those people, when is the last time you actually read the New Testament? Uh, there, there's, there's one theologian out there right now who I've just come across recently who I really admire. The dude is smart. You can listen to him for two minutes and know that he is smart. But, but here's something I found out. He doesn't think that God is angry at sinners. And that has made me take a big step back because I think Scripture is clear that He is. Many churches today, they, grow, they, 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 they draw these huge crowds by never mentioning sin and judgment. And instead, they focus on what we would consider the positive aspects of gospel. God loves you. He, he, he offers you an abundant life full of peace, joy, and love. And, and He'll help you with your problems. And He wants you to be happy. So won't you invite Him into your heart? But there's never a mention of a holy God 
who is justified in his wrath against sinners. Theologian Richard Niebuhr, he, uh, Niebuhr, he once described this message as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. When the Apostle Paul begins to expound on the gospel that he is proclaiming, back in verse 16, he doesn't lead off with the love of God, but with the righteousness of God. When he elaborates further here, beginning in verse 18, he doesn't mention God's love here either. He begins with God's wrath. Modern critics would say, Paul, you've got to, you, you, you're not going to win any converts by that approach. Lighten up. Maybe much later down the road you can touch on that subject. But when you're trying to win people to Christ, don't mention God's wrath. Tell that to Jonathan Edwards. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he begins here in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress that truth in righteousness. Now, the word for links it to verses 16 and 17. If you'll notice, uh, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Roman, but ever since the start, it's been for this, for, for, for. He's building a case. Well, he's continuing to do it here. If we're going to understand why we need God's power in the gospel and why we need the very righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, then we need to understand his wrath against sin. If we're not such bad folks and if we have enough good deeds to earn our points toward heaven, then we don't need God's righteousness and Christ did not need to bear God's wrath on our behalf on the cross. But if we are ungodly and unrighteous in God's sight, if we have in fact suppressed that truth in unrighteousness and as a result are under His just wrath then we desperately need God's saving power through the gospel. In our text, Paul is showing why God is justified in afflicting wrath on the sinful human race. And it shows us why we need the gospel. Now, verses 18 through 23, they can be summarized as such. God is just in pouring out His wrath on the human race because we have sinfully rejected His, His revelation of Himself and have worshipped the creature rather than than the Creator. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again we come to bow the knee and just ask for your, assence, uh, your assistance through your Holy Spirit to speak truth into our hearts, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand this truth that you are revealed in many ways. So God, speak to our hearts and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Only a couple major points. We're going to spend most of the time on point number one, and here it is. God is just in pouring out His wrath on the human race because we have sinfully rejected His revelation of Himself. Now, Paul argues that God has revealed Himself to the human race, both through His wrath, which we see in verse 18, and through His creation, which is in verses 19 and 20. And then we have excuse, inexcusably rejected God's revelation, and instead we've resorted to inventing gods of our own. That's verses 21 through 23. So A, God reveals Himself through His wrath against sin. Now, there's an obvious parallel between verses 17 and 18, and yet it's a contrast. Verse 17 says, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed. Did I get that right? The righteousness and the wrath, they're both revealed. Uh, the phrase from heaven 
that you find there in verse 18, it is added uh, just to add some weight to this revelation. This isn't an idea that just popped into Paul's head one day. No, this is a revelation from, from heaven that is from God himself. Now, when you think about God's wrath, we need to get rid of any human notions. Uh, you know, of someone who, with a bad temper who simply flies off the handle at the slightest provocation. No, God's wrath is part of his holy nature. It's his settled, determined, active opposition to sin. If God loves righteousness, he also must hate evil. If God were all love and no wrath, then he would not be a God at all because he would be unrighteous. We know this even on human on a human plane, if a judge is all love and hugs towards, uh, you know, um, cold-blooded murderers and child molesters, uh, then he wouldn't be a righteous judge. Now, even though our anger easily slips from being righteous to unrighteous, you ever had that happen to you? We know that anger is the proper response to certain sins. In the same way, God would not be holy, He would not be good if He didn't react to evil with His wrath and righteous judgment. Now, we only have a little bit of time to look at the many biblical references to God's wrath. We're not even going to the Old Testament. <laughs> just, just read the Old Testament sometime and you, you'll, get, you'll get a taste of God's wrath. The New Testament starts off with the ministry of John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, he is talking to his audience and he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In Matthew 23, after pronouncing a series of woes or judgments on the Pharisees, Jesus thunders, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? John 3.16, we all know that, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. Whoops, I left something out, didn't I? Shall not perish. To perish means to come under God's eternal wrath. In John 3.36, this is John speaking of Jesus. He said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, and the wrath of God abides on him. In Ephesians 2.3, Paul says that we are all Jews and Gentiles, children of wrath. That's a Jewish way of saying that we are characterized, characterized by being under God's wrath. Then over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6, he uses that same Jewish expression to say that sin is the reason that the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Praise God. The entire book of Revelation, whoo, that shows many forms of wrath that will be poured out on sinners both before and after Jesus returns. J.I. Packer, he says, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. A.W. Pink, um, he says, the study of a con concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. What that means is we cannot simply, you know, shove God's wrath into a, into a closet and never look at it. R.W. Dale says something very insightful. He says, it's partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath 
of God. Do you get that? The reason we believe that God doesn't get angry or, or you display His wrath against sin is because sin doesn't cause that reaction in us. Should it? Absolutely, it should, but it doesn't. Later in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul acknowledges that a future day of wrath is coming at the final judgment. But here in verse 18, he calls attention to the present revelation of God's wrath. The verb literally means is being revealed. So right now, God's wrath is being revealed. What does he mean? If we look around, we can see wrath in all of the effects of the fall, both on creation and on human misery and suffering. We see floods, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, famine, disease. There are more direct links uh, between sin and judgment, such as, such as STDs and AIDS on the sexually immoral. We see the terrible effect of drunkenness and drug abuse in the home, on our highways, and in society at large. We see the devastating effects of war and terrorism. And the list could just go on and on and on. Also, a glance through past church or yeah, Bible history shows the ongoing wrath of God. Genesis chapter 6, what does he decide? <laughs> Sin has had enough in earth. I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. He poured out fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. He punished both Israel and Judah for their sins by allowing invading foreign armies to kill many and to send others into captivity. But the greatest example of God pouring out His wrath was, we put when, he, was when He put His own Son on the cross to bear our sins. The wrath of God is always associated with sin. Okay, don't, don't miss that. But his wrath against his son was because he took on our sins. So that Jesus cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' terrible death shows that God cannot just brush aside our sin. His righteous judgment must be satisfied. Paul argued with the philosophers in Athens in Acts 17, and his argument was that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead proves that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Woe to all who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Christ before that day. God reveals Himself through His wrath. Don't miss it. Well, B, God reveals Himself through creation. And Paul goes on to show another way that God has revealed Himself, and that is through the created order, through the universe. Here's Paul, here Paul is referring to God's, what we call, general rev revelation in the created universe, not His special revelation, which is what we have in His written Word. Now, myth commentators understand His invisible attributes to be a summary term that is further explained by the next two terms, His eternal power and divine nature. Anyone should be able to look at the vastness of the universe, even without a telescope, and conclude that God is amazingly, incomprehensibly powerful. You don't have to gaze into outer space either. Just get caught in an exposed area in a thunderstorm, and you will appreciate God's power. Debbie and I have had that terrifying experience before, and it is that. It's terrifying. Well, God's 
divine nature refers to the sum of his attributes. This doesn't, this doesn't mean that we can learn about, uh, as much about God in nature as we can through his word. That's not true. But even so, men should be able to look at God's creation and conclude many things about his attributes in addition to his power. For example, David in Psalm, 1, in Psalm 19, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now this testimony from creation is nonverbal. It's seen, it's felt, it's experienced, not heard. It's also continuous, both day and night, 24-7, 365. It's worldwide in its scope, and there is no language barrier. The silent testimony from creation is quite strong. Despite that, it's important to recognize that God's revelation of himself through creation is not enough to save anyone, but it is enough to condemn everyone. It's not enough to save anyone because it doesn't reveal God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. And apart from that, there is no salvation. But it is enough to condemn everyone. And, and that may sound like I say it could. No, it does. It does condemn us. By even looking at your own body or a small gnat that can fly and eat and reproduce, we should bow and worship before God, but we don't. We swat the gnat away in annoyance and go on without a thought about the intelligence, power, and wisdom it took to create that little gnat, much less all of creation. We ignore the obvious fact that there is an all-powerful God, and we go full bore into our selfishness and sin, ignoring the obvious revelation of His wrath in the fact that we're all going to die soon. There's a question that often comes up here. Will God judge the innocent heathen who has never heard about Jesus? Well, the answer is no. God will not judge the innocent heathen. The problem is, there are no innocent heathen. All have sinned against the light that they have received through creation, and all will be judged accordingly. They have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness. Well, that leads to C, sinners have inexcusably rejected God's revelation of himself, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Paul says that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. <clears throat> Some commentators see those two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness, as being somewhat synonymous and they're repeated for emphasis. Others say that Paul is using them quite strictly to refer to a lack of reverence for God, that's ungodliness, and the lawlessness or unjust, uh, injustice towards our fellow man, that's unrighteousness. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes at length to argue that the terms uh, refer to these two different aspects of sin and that Paul has put them in that order for a particular reason. Ungodliness is always the root sin and unrighteousness flows from it. Our first and most basic problem is that we disregard, we disobey God. This leads to our sins against one another. Ungodliness was the first sin when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. This led to separation from God and an alienation between each other 
and to the sin that caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. Now the word suppress that Paul uses here, in a positive, when it's used positively, it means to hold on to. It's a good thing. When used negatively as it is here, it means to hold down, to suppress. It, impri- it implies that men knew the truth. You've you got to think about this. That means that there is such a thing as knowable, absolute, spiritual truth that you are going to be held accountable for one day. But they want to hold it down. They want to suppress it so that they can pursue their own sins. Whether it's evolution, denying uh, God as the sovereign creator, or philosophy, speculating that we cannot really know God at all, or psychology, telling us that uh, we are not really responsible for our problems. These are all ways of us pushing God away so that we can do our own thing and be our own Lord. Paul says, so they are without excuse. That's a, that's a purpose clause, and it simply means sinners cannot plead ignorance as an excuse. You're not going to be able to stand before God and say, I did not know. God has posted huge warning signs with flashing lights, namely His ongoing wrath and His magnificent creation. If sinners drive past them over the cliff, they only have themselves to blame. So Paul's first point is, God is just in pouring out His wrath on the human race because we have sinfully rejected His revelation of Himself. Now I can only briefly comment on the second point and its implications. Number two, God is just in pouring out His wrath on the human race because we have worshipped the creature rather than the Creator. And Paul makes five points here just quickly. A, people knew God generally through the revelation of creation. This is kind of a restatement of verse uh, 20. Paul seems to be here to, uh, to be interpreting human spirit history, spiritual history in light of the fall. Verse 21 does not mean that they knew God in a saving way, but rather that they had a general sense that He exists. And that's what verse 20 communicates as well. In the Institutes, uh, John Calvin asserts that all people have an awareness of God. Here's what he says. There is no nation so barbarous, no people so savage, that they have not a deep-seated conviction that there is a God. As Paul has just shown, God's creation makes His attributes evident within all people but they suppress it. Well, B, people do not glorify God or give thanks. That is the root sin. Although people know about God, they do not give Him the proper glory and they do not express thanks to Him. It'd be easy to develop an entire sermon or two here, but let me apply it directly. It's easy for us to sit back and and shake our heads at the heathen who have no concept of glorifying God or giving thanks. But let me ask you, Do you glorify God for His goodness and mercy and grace and love? Do you give thanks to God for His many blessings that He showers on you every day? Well, see, as a result, the foolish hearts of sinners were darkened. Paul also refers to this over in chapter 4 of Ephesians where he describes the Gentiles, pagans, as darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. When Paul here in verse 21 says that their foolish heart was darkened, he's referring to their entire inner life. 
including their intellect, their emotions, and their will. It's all been tainted by sin. To be in the dark refers to moral and spiritual blindness, and only God can shine His light into those dark places. Well, D, as a result of darkened hearts, sinners profess to be wise, but they are fools. You know that atheists have a national holiday, right? Huh? April 1st. Why, why April 1st? April Fool's Day. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 both say the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, since the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and these people do not fear God, they do not bow down before Him, they profess to be wise, but they are fools. Fools doesn't refer to mental deficiency. It refers to spiritual and moral deficiency. Turning from the revelation that God has given of Himself in wrath and in creation, sinners plunge, Paul says, into futile speculation. There's one final result. E, this foolishness is exhibited by worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. Get this, rejecting God doesn't lead to atheism but to substituting the glory of the one true God with man-made idols in the form of corruptible man, birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling things. Man didn't begin with idolatry in polytheism and work his way up to monotheism. It's just the opposite. Man began by, began by knowing the one true God. But when he suppresses that truth in unrighteousness, he, he falls into the supreme foolishness of creature worship. I want to read a passage from Isaiah 44 where God mocks both idols and their makers. Here's what he says. He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and he says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart, sounds kind of like Paul, has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? By which he's referring to the idol he's just made out of the same tree that he cooked his food on. Mm. So is God just in pouring out his wrath on those who have rejected his revelation of himself, who turn instead to worship the creature rather than the creator? Is God just in pouring out his wrath? You bet he is. When you stand before him one day, do you have any chance of winning your case? Only if you stand there by faith, covered 
by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, it reveals truth, and at the same time, that truth normally convicts us because we are seem to be so many times so far from the truth. And the truth today is that, yes, you are angry with sinners. Your wrath is real. It, will, it is being revealed and will continue to be so until that great day, Father, of judgment. So we ask that you would just speak to our hearts now. Speak truth that we can hear your Holy Spirit. Father, do your work. And we'll give you praise for it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in, very few of us, how many of you have an idol in your you know, closet where you go pick it out? I, I have seen this. I went to a universalist church uh, in, in Atlanta, and they had a room, and it was literally filled with idols. And you just went in, you picked your idol, you went out and you worshipped it for a while, and you brought it back. And you know what you did with it? You put it in the closet, and you turned out the light and shut the door. Incredible, the foolishness of that. Well, typically, we don't, we don't worship idols like that. What type of idols do we worship? Ourselves. <laughs> there you go. That, that's the big one right there, ourselves, right? Uh, God created us in His image, and, he's done, and we've done the favor of creating our God in our image. Have you trusted Christ that's the only resolve for your situation is to trust Jesus Christ. I hope you have. Believers, I hope today that you'll consider in your heart what might be some idols. Like I said, we probably don't have anything carved out there that we actually pray to and whatever. But let me ask you this. Can a good thing become an idol? Most good things do become idols. And our world pushes us that way so heartily. No, we need to stay true to the one true God. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.